Section five of La Sommoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. La Sommoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Chapter two. Three weeks later, towards half past eleven, one beautiful sunshiny day, Gervaise and Coupeau zinc worker were each partaking of a plum preserved in brandy at la Semoire, kept by pere colombe coupeau who had been smoking a cigarette on the pavement had prevailed on her to go inside as she returned from taking home a customer's washing and her big square laundress's basket was on the floor beside her behind the little zinc covered table pere colombe's la Semoire was at the corner of rue de Poissonnier and boulevard de rochougar the sign, in tall blue letters stretching from one end to the other, said Distillery. Two dusty oleanders, planted in half-casks, stood beside the doorway. A long bar, with its tin measuring cups, was on the left as you entered. The large room was decorated with casks painted a gay yellow, bright with varnish, and gleaming with copper taps and hoops. On the shelves above the bar were liquor bottles, jars of fruit preserved in brandy, and flasks of all shapes. They completely covered the wall and were reflected in the mirror behind the bar as colourful spots of apple green, pale gold, and soft brown. The main feature of the establishment, however, was the distilling apparatus. It was at the rear, behind an oak railing in a glassed-in area. The customers could watch its functioning, long-necked stillpots, copper worms disappearing underground, a devil's kitchen alluring to drink-sodden workmen in search of pleasant dreams. La Samoire was nearly empty at the lunch hour. Père Colombe, a heavy man of forty, was serving a ten-year-old girl who had asked him to place four sous worth of brandy into her cup. A shaft of sunlight came through the entrance to warm the floor, which was always damp from the smoker's spitting. From everything, the casks, the bar, the entire room, a licorice odour arose, an alcoholic aroma which seemed to thicken and befuddle the dust motes dancing in the sunlight. Coupeau was making another cigarette. He was very neat, in a short blue linen blouse and cap, and was laughing and showing his white teeth. With a projecting underjaw and a slightly snubbed nose, he had handsome chestnut eyes and the face of a jolly dog and a thorough good fellow. His coarse curly hair stood erect. His skin still preserved the softness of his twenty-six years. Opposite to him, Gervaise, in a thin black woolen dress and bareheaded, was finishing her plum, which she held by the stalk between the tips of her fingers. They were close to the street, at the first of the four tables placed alongside the barrels, facing the bar. When the zinc worker had lit a cigarette, he placed his elbows on the table, thrust his face forward, and for an instant looked without speaking at the young woman, whose pretty fair face had that day the milky transparency of China. Then, alluding to a matter known to themselves alone and already discussed between them he simply asked in a low voice so it's to be no you say no oh most decidedly no monsieur coupeau quietly replied gervaise with a smile i hope you're not going to talk to me about that here you know you promised me you would be reasonable had i known i wouldn't have let you treat me Coupeau kept silence, looking at her intently with a boldness. She sat still, at ease and friendly. At the end of a brief silence, she added, "'You can't really mean it. 
I'm an old woman. I have a big boy, eight years old. Whatever could we two do together? Why, murmured Coupeau, blinking his eyes, what the others do, of course, get married. She made a gesture of feeling annoyed. Oh, do you think it's always pleasant? One can very well see you've never seen much of living. No, Monsieur Coupeau, I must think of serious things. Burdening oneself never leads to anything, you know. I have two mouths at home, which are never tired of swallowing, I can tell you. How do you suppose I can bring up my little ones if I only sit here talking indolently? And listen, besides that, my misfortune has been a famous lesson to me. You know I don't care a bit about men now. They won't catch me again for a long while. She spoke with such cool objectivity that it was clear she had resolved this in her mind, turning it about thoroughly. Coupeau was deeply moved and kept repeating, I feel so sorry for you. It causes me a great deal of pain. Yes, I know that, resumed she, and I am sorry, Monsieur Coupeau, but you mustn't take it to heart. If I had any idea of enjoying myself, mon Dieu, I would certainly rather be with you than anyone else. You're a good boy and gentle. Only, where's the use, as I've no inclination to wed? I've been for the last fortnight now at Madame Fauconnier's. The children go to school. I've work. I'm contented. So the best is to remain as we are, isn't it? And she stooped down to take her basket. You're making me talk. They must be expecting me at the shop. You'll easily find someone else prettier than I, Monsieur Coupeau, and who won't have two boys to drag about with her. He looked at the clock inserted in the framework of the mirror, and made her sit down again, exclaiming, "'Don't be in such a hurry. It's only eleven-thirty-five. I've still twenty-five minutes. You don't have to be afraid that I shall do anything foolish. There's the table between us. So you detest me so much that you won't stay and have a little chat with me?' She put her basket down again, so as not to disoblige him, and they conversed like good friends. She had eaten her lunch before going out with the laundry. He had gulped down his soup and beef hurriedly to be able to wait for her. All the while she chatted amiably, Gervaise kept looking out the window at the activity on the street. It was now unusually crowded with the lunchtime rush. Everywhere were hurried steps, swinging arms and pushing elbows. Some latecomers, hungry and angry at being kept extra long at the job, rushed across the street into the bakery. They emerged with a loaf of bread and went three doors farther to the two-headed calf to gobble down a six-sous meat dish. Next door to the bakery was a grocer who sold fried potatoes and mussels cooked with parsley. A procession of girls went in to get hot potatoes wrapped in paper and cups of steaming mussels. Other pretty girls bought bunches of radishes. By leaning a bit, Gervaise could see into the sausage shop from which children issued, holding a fried chop, a sausage, or a piece of hot blood pudding wrapped in greasy paper. The street was always slick with black mud, even in clear weather. A few laborers had already finished their lunch and were strolling aimlessly about, their open hands slapping their thighs, heavy from eating, slow and peaceful amid the hurrying crowd. A group formed in front of the door of La Samoire. "'Say, Bibi the Smoker,' demanded a hoarse voice, "'aren't you going to buy us a round of vitriol?' Five laborers came in and stood by the bar. "'Ah, here's that thief, Père Colombe,' the voice continued. "'We want the real old stuff, you know, and full-sized glasses, too.' Père Colombe served them as three more laborers entered. More blue smocks gathered on the street corner, and some pushed their way into the establishment.' 
"'You're foolish. You only think of the present,' Gervaise was saying to Coupeau. "'Sure, I loved him, but after the disgusting way in which he left me.' They were talking of Lantier. Gervaise had not seen him again. She thought he was living with Virginie's sister at La Glachère in the house of that friend who was going to start a hat factory. She had no thought of running after him. She had been so distressed at first that she had thought of drowning herself in the river. But now that she had thought about it, everything seemed to be for the best. Lantier went through money so fast that she probably never could have raised her children properly. Oh, she'd let him see his children all right if he bothered to come round. But as far as she was concerned, she didn't want him to touch her, not even with his fingertips. She told all this to Coupeau, just as if her plan of life was well settled. Meanwhile, Coupeau never forgot his desire to possess her. He made a jest of everything she said, turning it into ribaldry and asking some very direct questions about Lantier. But he proceeded so gaily and with such a smile that she never thought of being offended. "'So you're the one who beat him,' said he at length. "'Oh, you're not kind. You just go around whipping people.' She interrupted him with a hearty laugh. It was true, though, she had whipped. Virginie's tall carcass. She would have delighted in strangling someone on that day. She laughed louder than ever when Coupeau told her that Virginie, ashamed at having shown so much cowardice, had left the neighborhood. Her face, however, preserved an expression of childish gentleness as she put out her plump hands, insisting she wouldn't even harm a fly. She began to tell Coupeau about her childhood at Plassans. She had never cared overmuch for men. They had always bored her. She was fourteen when she got involved with Lantier. She had thought it was nice because he said he was her husband and she had enjoyed playing a housewife. She was too soft-hearted and too weak. She always got passionately fond of people who caused her trouble later. When she loved a man, she wasn't thinking of having fun in the present. She was dreaming about being happy and living together forever. And as Coupeau, with a chuckle, spoke of her two children, saying they hadn't come from under a bolster, she slapped his fingers. She added that she was, no doubt, made on the model of other women. Women thought of their home, slave to keep the place clean and tidy, and went to bed too tired at night not to go to sleep at once. Besides, she resembled her mother, a stout labouring woman who died at her work and who had served as beast of burden to old Macquart for more than twenty years. Her mother's shoulders had been heavy enough to smash through doors, but that didn't prevent her from being soft-hearted and madly attracted to people and if she limped a little, she no doubt owed that to the poor woman whom old Macquart used to belabor with blows. Her mother had told her about the times when Macquart came home drunk and brutally bruised her. She had probably been born with a lame leg as a result of one of those times. "'Oh, it's scarcely anything. It's hardly perceptible,' said Coupeau gallantly. She shook her head. She knew well enough that it could be seen. At forty she would look broken in two. Then she added gently, with a slight laugh, "'It's a funny fancy of yours to fall in love with a cripple.' With his elbows still on the table, he thrust his face closer to hers and began complimenting her in rather dubious language as though to intoxicate her with his words. But she kept shaking her head no and didn't allow herself to be tempted, although she was flattered by the tone of his voice. While listening, she kept looking out the window, seeming to be fascinated by the interesting crowd of people passing. The shops were now almost empty. The grocer removed his last panful of fried potatoes from the stove. The sausage-man arranged the dishes scattered on his counter. 
great bearded workmen were as playful as young boys clumping along in their hobnailed boots other workmen were smoking staring up into the sky and blinking their eyes factory bells began to ring in the distance but the workers in no hurry relit their pipes later after being tempted by one wine-shop after another they finally decided to return to their jobs but were still dragging their feet gervaise amused herself by watching three workmen a tall fellow and two short ones who turned to look back every few yards they ended by descending the street and came straight to pere colombe's l'assommoir ah well murmured she there's three fellows who don't seem inclined for work why said coupeau i know the tall one it's my boots a comrade of mine pere colombe's l'assommoir was now full you had to shout to be heard fists often pounded on the bar causing the glasses to clink everyone was standing hands crossed over belly or held behind back the drinking groups crowded close to one another some groups by the casks had to wait a quarter of an hour before being able to order their drinks of pere colombe hello it's that aristocrat young cassis cried my boots bringing his hand down roughly on coupeau's shoulder a fine gentleman who smokes paper and wears shirts so we want to do the grand with our sweetheart we stand her little treats shut up don't bother me replied coupeau greatly annoyed but the other added with a chuckle right you are we know what's what my boy muffs are muffs that's all he turned his back after leering terribly as he looked at gervaise the latter drew back feeling rather frightened the smoke from the pipes the strong odor of all those men ascended in the air already foul with the fumes of alcohol and she felt a choking sensation in her throat and coughed slightly ah oh, what a horrible thing it is to drink said she in a low voice and she related that formerly at placence she used to drink anisette with her mother but on one occasion it nearly killed her and that disgusted her with it now she could never touch any liqueurs you see added she pointing to her glass i've eaten my plum only i must leave the juice because it would make me ill for himself coupeau couldn't understand how anyone could drink glass after glass of cheap brandy a brandied plum occasionally could not hurt but as for cheap brandy absinthe and the other strong stuff no not for him no matter how much his comrades teased him about it he stayed out on the sidewalk when his friends went into low establishments coupeau's father had smashed his head open one day when he fell from the eaves of number twenty five on rue coquenard he was drunk this memory kept coupeau's entire family from the drink every time coupeau passed that spot he thought he would rather lick up water from the gutter than accept a free drink in a bar he would always say in our trade you have to have steady legs end of first part of chapter two